Lucas and his family are off visiting family, and so I get the opportunity to teach, uh, to spend time in the Word with you, and I appreciate the opportunity and love digging in. It was uh, said once, and I'm not sure who to attribute the quote to, but that um, as, as you're studying, you come away with a wheelbarrow worth of stuff, and you're only able to hand out a teaspoon of it this morning by comparison. And so I'm getting a lot more out of this, and so um, I just enjoy the opportunity to teach because certainly God speaks to me, and I need to hear from Him before I can even say one word in this setting. We are in Luke chapter 7 this morning, and why don't we um, go ahead and pick up in verse 11. We're going to read through the text together before we uh, dive in. We're in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for these reminders of your character and your nature and the truth that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you do not change. So what we read of you here, we know is still true today, and we pray that we would understand what the Bible is saying, what happened in this historical record, but also what you're saying to us right here in our present-day lives, and how these two come together to shape us and mold us and to equip us. And we ask that you would be our teacher by your Holy Spirit for our growth and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get started, I, I just kind of an illustration came to mind, and, and the idea was how many of you guys have come to appreciate online shopping? I love the fact that I can just open up a browser and have whatever I need show up on my doorstep a couple days later, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, we were actually at the mall the other day for because uh, the kids had a Build-A-Bear gift card, and you can't really do that, not in person. And I just forgot the whole mall experience, and I was so glad that you can just click and have it sent there. But one of the things I hate about online shopping is actually shopping for clothes because I'm never confident that what I'm seeing on the screen is going to be what I want when it shows up. I don't know if you guys have had this problem. I saw a pair of pants the other day that were, it was a killer deal. I was going to get these pants for like 20 bucks. And I thought, man, that is a great deal. These are a great clothes out. I love the color. The sizes look like mine. And they showed up. I opened the package and I absolutely hated them. They, they do great at simultaneously making me look shorter and bigger than I already am. And I can get the bigger thing. I'm doing that all on my own. But the shorter thing, that's all on the pants. And I was so bummed because what I saw on screen looked a whole lot different when I had it in my hands and saw it in person. 
And I say all that to say sometimes seeing something in person where you can touch it and feel it and hold it up and, you know, show it uh, to your wife to get permission to buy it. It's a whole lot different than seeing something in concept. And the other day I was having a conversation with one of the guys here at church and we got on the subject of how Jesus reveals God to us in very tangible ways. And you're thinking, well, that's a stretch to get from there to there, but that's that's what I got, so deal with it. (laughs) When you and I see Jesus, we are seeing God with skin on. The ideas that we've seen in the Old Testament and now for us also in the New Testament, Jesus exemplifies those things. He lives them out in a way that John would later say, that which we have seen and touched and heard, but we've laid our hands on him. We're now telling you about him. There's a way when we see Jesus that we're seeing God revealed to us in the flesh. The Bible says that the word God the Son became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see God the Father lived out before us. Now, obviously, none of us have seen God at any time. But Jesus, the only begotten Son who is in the heart, the very bosom of the Father, he has declared him to us. And that's certainly the case in our passage this morning. Because in our story, we see the great compassion of God along with his awesome power. And these are two concepts that might be hard for us to grasp, to really picture, to try and imagine when we're thinking about a God who's both infinite and unseen by the human eye. And so as we try and picture these big ideas, it might be hard for us to put a handle on those things. But in the person of Jesus, those characteristics and that nature, it takes on flesh. They aren't made more real. The concepts and the nature of God is still the same. It hasn't changed, but they hit a little different when we see them in Jesus, don't they? His compassion meets us in our moments of greatest pain, and his power, it humbles us in a really profound way. It puts us in awe of him. And again, like we said, the wonderful truth is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The things that we see in Jesus in our text this morning, they remain true for us today. His compassion and power on display here in our verses are still true for us today. And so with that, we've already read through it, so let's dive right in. Luke opens this next scene in chapter 7 by saying, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. So it's the day after the interaction uh, with the Roman centurion there in Capernaum. And I love this. He says, it happened. And on the one hand, it, it seems like it just happened, but let's think about it. Throughout the Gospels, we've seen that Jesus is following a very specific plan by the leading of the, of the Father. If you went back to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, we saw that Jesus was having a fruitful season of ministry in Capernaum. The people wanted to hear from them. The disciples said, hey, let's hang out here. But Jesus says, no, we need to keep moving on. He was clearly being led by the Father's plans. A different timetable than what other people had. In John chapter 4, verse 4, we read that Jesus needed to make the trip through Samaria, a region that the Jews would normally skirt around, but he knew that there was a direct uh, leading from the Father so that he could speak with a woman at a well. 
And so here in chapter 7, we're seeing Jesus moving around the Galilee region. And as we read in the next verse, he just so happens to be entering the city of Nain when a funeral procession is making its way out. And you think from just the first reading, well, what a coincidence. It just happened. What are the odds of this? And on the surface, in a certain way, it may say that it happened. But gang, this was deliberate, wasn't it? I mean, we just set up that Jesus is being led by the Father. There is no way that he just so happens to arrive at the city gate right as the funeral procession is leaving that same city gate. There is no happenstance at all here. This is what we would call a divine appointment. Jesus knew to be here at this very moment. Now, Nain is probably a 25-mile journey from Capernaum, uh, this where, which is where the setting of the first part of the chapter took place. And one does not simply walk 25 miles into Nain. Jesus meant to meet this woman in her moment of grief. This was the very moment that he planned to be here. And so I love how Luke says it happened, because in one sense it did just appear to happen, but we know beneath the surface there is very deliberate planning to be here at this moment for this woman. He just so happened to show up as this funeral procession was leaving the city gate. And when he came near the gate, verse 12, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. There was a large crowd from the city that was with her. Now, when they get to Nain, the city itself, the name means beautiful. But obviously, the events leading up to this meeting between Jesus and this woman were anything but beautiful. And Luke helps us understand the gravity of this moment as we encounter this funeral procession. First of all, just taking in the scene, death in and of itself is cause for grief and wait in this moment. You and I know death is an intruder. It's an unnatural disruption of God's original design for humankind. Death only exists because sin opened the door. We read in Romans that sin entered the world and death through sin. When sin came in, it left the door open and sin came hot on its feet. Death was never meant to be here. It's a disruption of God's design and it's a departure from the creation that he described as very good in Genesis. Now you and I, we try to steel ourselves against it. We try to kind of take it in as a natural thing and carry on as if it's normal. But when we're confronted with death, there's something that's deep inside of us that instinctively says this is very, very wrong. It's a disruption of God's original design. And so the image of this dead man being carried out is weighty enough. But it gets worse because his surviving family member is a widow, his mother, and she had only one son. And so as a widow, she would have been already in a precarious position. Her husband previously would have been her provider typically for the family and much of her covering in society. And so when her husband dies, it would have then fallen on her son to take up that mantle to support her and to cover her within society. And now that her husband and her son have passed away, both of those things are gone. This woman is in a very, very vulnerable position. I love how Matthew Henry speaks of her loss. He said, This young man was the only son of his mother, and she a widow. 
She depended upon him to be the staff of her old age, but he proves a broken reed. In fact, every man at his best estate is so. How numerous, how various, how very calamitous are the afflictions of the afflicted in this world. Already afflicted and now another wound laid upon this woman. The afflictions of the afflicted. A double grief for this widow, her husband and her son. And really, if you think about it, to be fair to this woman, it's a triple grief because now she's got to be wondering about her own well-being. How is she going to make it? Not only mourning the loss of these two men in her life, now wondering what is going to happen to her. It's a powerful mixture of emotions, isn't it? And just then, Jesus happens to show up. It just happens, right? Obviously not. You know, some years removed from this encounter, James, the brother of Jesus, is going to write pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'd say Jesus is doing that very thing, right? Meeting a widow in the moment of her trouble, a pure expression of religion, God's care for people. And Jesus, as we see, is going to demonstrate his compassion for this woman, this individual, in a very specific sense, in a very specific way. But we also want to notice that this story is unfolding on another stage as well. And you kind of picture the story as happening in two different settings. On the one setting, it's the woman and Jesus alone, two individuals in a conversation. But then there's also these two large groups that Luke has talked about. Because there's a large group accompanying the widow. This was common practice for the culture and for the day. Because dead bodies were considered to be ceremonially unclean, the Jews would typically take a body and bury it outside the city, typically the day that the individual died. And so as the nucleus of that group moves from wherever their home was or wherever the person was uh, being cared for out into the place of burial... The sounds of their mourning and their grief would draw others into that procession. And it would alert others. People would join the procession as it made its way to the gravesite outside the city gates. And so as we read here in verse 12, by the time the widow reaches the city gate, she's accompanied by a large crowd from her community. There's a large group of people that is showing their support to her. And as you picture this kind of, this stream of humanity moving one direction, picture another stream coming in and converging from the other direction, because verse 11 says that Jesus is coming with a large crowd as well. He has many of his disciples, but also a large crowd. So it's not just the 12, because they were the apostles. There's also this larger group of generic uh, disciples, and then even beyond that, there's this large crowd that's following him. Luke calls it literally much people in the original Greek. And so you have these kind of two streams of people, these two currents of people moving and converging on one another. And at the convergence of these two groups, Jesus is going to show compassion and the power of God, what it looks like with skin on. It's going to be a life-altering blessing for this woman, and it's going to be an incredible lesson, a powerful moment for those gathered in the crowds. And so verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. When he sees this woman at the head of the crowd, the head of the procession, he's immediately moved with compassion for her. 
This is a beautiful emotion, and it's a pretty strong word picture in the original Greek. In Greek, it means to be moved to one's bowels. That is, it speaks to emotion held at a gut level. It speaks to being moved to the core of who we are. It's much, much more than just an intellectual, or rather an intellectual understanding that, man, this widow's having a rough day. Moved to the very core of who he is. It's a deeply felt emotion. And think about it. This deep gut-level emotion has an object, right? It has a, 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 recipient, a recipient of that emotion. It's the woman being swept up by her loss. Jesus wasn't being carried away by this emotion. Somehow his reason pushed off to the side by strong feelings. His emotions and his reason were in perfect harmony working to care for this woman, in contrast, our daughter Evie, she cracks me up. Evie is a strong feeler. The emotion game runs strong in this little one. She has strong emotions. And they're typically pretty cute right now that she's just three, almost four. I'll get back to you when she's 13 and 14. Uh, these strong emotions, though, they don't always have an object. Um, sadly, she gets really hangry. And it, it just it happens, and it happens strong. And when she's hangry, she doesn't really have an object for that strong emotion. It just kind of comes off of her in waves. It just, anything in proximity gets swept up in how she's feeling at that moment. But she's also, she's wonderful because on the other hand, she's full of joy at times. So just singing, she'll just be doing random stuff, just singing to herself. Again, not a single object for her strong emotion of joy. It's just sunshine that just seems to radiate off her. And if you come into that radius, you're going to get caught up in it. She has strongly held emotions, but they don't always have a particular object or a particular point of focus. But that's not so with Jesus here. He sees this widow particularly, and she's moved with, or rather, he's moved with compassion for her specifically. And I love how Luke is setting up a really poignant contrast between the large groups that have converged and the two individuals at the head of those two groups. At that point of convergence are two individuals, a grieving woman and an attentive Savior. An unattributed quote said of this meeting, as soon as the Lord saw her, the love of his heart flowed out to her. And although as yet she is a stranger to his sympathy, he is no stranger to her sorrow. I love that quote. No stranger to her sorrow. We've mentioned this in the past. But I am so grateful that God cares for each one of us individually. And we know that as we read through scriptures. We see God's heart uh, for the individual as we read through scriptures. But here we see it again with skin on. A big idea that we've seen throughout the Bible, now we see it with skin on as Jesus zeroes in on a single individual. He saw this individual woman and God's immense compassion showed up for her specifically. God the Son saw a single individual woman in a great time of distress. And I just ask the question, do you realize that God sees you this morning? You specifically. You're not just caught up in the whole sea of humanity, just a, a, a nameless face. He sees past the crowd that is this room here, and he sees you specifically. 
Sometimes you and I might feel unwitnessed, unseen, unheard by anyone else, but we can take confidence in the fact that God sees us and He knows us specifically. And as we see here, He cares for us at a gut level. Now, on the one hand, it's one thing to know and take encouragement from, say, Lamentations 3. There in verses 22 and 23, we read famously, though through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's one thing to know that and to take encouragement for it, but it's another thing to see it lived out in the life of Jesus, isn't it? Good theology will tell us that God is compassionate. The life of Jesus helps us see for, his, uh, see for ourselves how he cares for an individual. It puts it in a fresh light. It puts the compassion of God inside a human frame. Again, God cares for you deeply. He cares for you deeply. I love how John Corson calls compassion. He says, it's your pain in my heart. I love that description. God carries your pain in his heart. What do we read in Isaiah 53? Surely he has borne our griefs and he carries our sorrows. He doesn't just hold them at a distance. He doesn't just observe them from a safe place, you know, kind of clinically removed from these things. He carries them. Compassion, your pain in my part, heart, your pain in God's heart. His compassions will never fail, as we've said. And that compassion for you is felt deeply. He carries your pain in his heart. And like this widow, you're seen and you're loved by a compassionate Savior, the very God of the universe. So he sees this woman and he's moved with compassion for her. And he says to her, do not weep. Now, knowing that we're seen and that God carries our pain in his heart, is, it's good news, right? It should give us strength. It should encourage us. But his compassion goes beyond those two things. His compassion now takes action. And that action is carried out by the very infinite universe-sustaining power that is God. In this case, that means speaking to the widow to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He is about to do an incredible exchange in this widow's life. And in the next verse, we'll see how he does that. But I want to notice something quick about the individual care that we see in Jesus. Because here in our text, we see Jesus speaking hope to this woman. He tells her not to weep. Now, this is not just a command uh, to buck up and just get on with your business. This is a message of hope when he tells her to stop weeping. He's saying, in effect, you can dry your tears because I'm about to fix the cause of that grief. It's a word of hope that Jesus speaks to her. Now, interestingly, we see the compassion of Jesus displayed in a different way in John chapter 11. There in John chapter 11, Jesus is standing with Martha and Mary, two sisters who've lost their brother, and they are grieving the death of a loved one. And at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus stands next to the two sisters, and this time, he weeps with them. Instead of telling them, hey, don't weep, I'm about to solve this thing, he weeps with those who are weeping. 
Now, of course, the story is going to end up just the same as it does here in Luke chapter 7, doesn't it? The one who had passed away was going to be raised and restored to those who were grieving their loss. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead just like he's about to do this widow's son. But instead of a word of hope, he displays compassion by weeping with those who weep. And neither is more important than the other, but it's just an interesting contrast. And what it says to me is that God's care for us is very specific. It's not just a blanket, one size fits all. When I see someone weeping the death of a loved one, I do A, B, and C. I just follow my procedures, and it's always the same no matter the setting. Jesus knows how to care for you specifically. And his care for you might be different today than it is tomorrow. And it might be different from you to the person who's sitting next to you. And yet the underlying compassion that he's displaying remains the same. Through and through God sees us and he takes care of us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And as we see continuing as we move forward, his infinite care is coupled with his infinite power. God knows how to take care of you. Well, verse 14, he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him, that is the dead man, stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Luke says, then he came and touched the open coffin. Then who? Well, obviously it was Jesus. It's not a trick question. But I ask this question to help us pay attention to something because Luke sets up this interesting display of power in verse 13 by referring to Jesus as the Lord. And I think this is very, very deliberate. If you were to go back and scan verses 1 through 10, you'll see there that Jesus is referred to by his name frequently throughout the story. You could just kind of scan it and you'll see his name pop up frequently in verses 1 through 10. But if you were to scan through 11 through 17, our text this morning, you'll see that Jesus isn't called by his name at all in these verses. In fact, the only time that Jesus is referred to something other than he or him is when uh, Luke calls him the Lord in verse 13. And I think the absence of other names and titles makes this reference stand out for us, to pay attention to it. Luke is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is Lord. The Greek word translated to our English Lord, it comes from a root word meaning supremacy. Luke is reminding us that Jesus is absolutely supreme in this moment. He is the singular Lord. And he is Lord over everything that he is faced with. Nothing he is interacting with in this moment, including death, is outside of his lordship and his supreme control. And Luke points our attention to that. So the supreme Lord of all creation, he steps up to this coffin, and with all the authority that is rightly his, he calls this dead man back to life. Gang, this is power we finite human beings simply cannot imagine. Death holds power over all of us, doesn't it? And Jesus just stomped all over death. This wasn't some intense struggle like an EMT trying to bring someone back from the brink of death, you know, pounding on the chest, trying to breathe life into lungs, trying to coax a person back from the edge of death. Jesus, with simply a word, draws this young man back to life. 
all the power of infinite God is on display here. No contest between Jesus and death. He simply speaks the word, and that was that. And just so that we don't miss anything, Luke records that the young man sits up, and he begins to speak. He began to speak. Now, sitting up shows us that he's back physically. He's restored physically. The body that was previously unresponsive is now functioning. The heart is beating again, energizing those muscles. The lungs are cycling, doing their nonstop work of taking oxygen in and handing out carbon dioxide. The young man is physically alive. But he also speaks, doesn't he? Showing us that he's mentally restored. He's no longer brought back, perhaps just as an additional burden to his mother. He's mentally there as well. He can form thoughts. He can form sounds. He can form ideas. And he can put those all together with speech. Whatever had led up to this young man's death has now been overruled and fully restored. And then, the act of mercy in all of this, we see that he was restored to his mother. Jesus presents him to his mother. The mom has her son again. The widow is covered. This isn't just a flex. It's an abs- uh, a display and an act of compassion. And so what can we take away from this display of compassion and power? What does this mean? Well, a couple of thoughts of application and ideas for us. First of all, don't overlook the fact that this is power with a purpose. Let me just say that again. This is power with intent and purpose. Jesus isn't just doing a a cool flex for his disciple, you know, casually raising the dead so that a video will go viral and the disciples will be like, oh, he just raised a dead man. Yo, let's go. You know, he's not making some sort of viral video here. This is power on display for a purpose. It's a great demonstration of his compassion. As we've said before, our God is a compassionate God. He cares deeply for his people, and the expression of this power is to put that compassion into motion. So there is nothing outside of his power when it comes to expressing his compassion. You guys ran into that before where maybe someone uh, has lost someone or maybe someone's going through a difficult season and you realize the extent to which you can show compassion and meaningly show up in their life, it's kind of limited. Our hands are held. What am I going to do? I can send them a meal. I can let them know I'm there. And, And those things have value. But at some point we recognize my compassion, it bumps up against my ability to change or to do anything. I have a natural limit for how far that compassion can go, but not so with God. There's nothing outside of his power when it comes to expressing his compassion. Secondly, to observe from this, this same power that we see here is at work in the way that he cares for our lives today. Again, we've said Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't diminished in strength since the Gospels. He hasn't run out of batteries or, you know, kind of got sidetracked by some different plan. You can take courage from the fact that God is still at work in your life today. Your God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There is nothing your God cannot do. Now, I can't say how his compassion for you will be expressed, but again, I can say there's no limit to what he's capable of doing. And third, and this is what we see in the rest of our text this morning, this display of compassion and power should put us in awe of him. It should make us sit back and say, wow, we've got something special on our hands here. We can't stay unchanged after seeing a display like this takes place. And that's exactly what we see. Verse 16, then fear came upon all 
And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now, if you think about it again, this whole story is taking place in two settings. We've got the small interaction between Jesus and the individual widow, but we also have the larger stage of these two large crowds. And for most people in these large crowds, this act of compassion doesn't really have any personal impact on their lives. Uh, The degree to which it means something to them is pretty far removed. The takeaway for them at the end of the day was seeing how powerful God is and how this is at work in the life of Jesus. And fear came upon them. The Greek word is genuinely phobia. It's a real fear. Like, this is something that is a little bit intimidating. I remember you read about uh, in the book of Narnia, in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, the children are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the Lion. And they're asking, you know, is he safe? Is he, you know, is he okay to be around this, this guy? He's a, he's a lion. This is a strange idea, this concept. And he says, well, he's still a lion, but he's good. And that's what we see when we and you and I have a fear of God that's talked about throughout the Bible. It's, yes, there's genuine fear where we're put in awe of him. And, and there's a sense this is real and this is weighty and, and we're a whole lot different. But we also couple that with his goodness. That he is at the same time infinitely good. And so fear comes upon the crowd as it should have. This was a supernatural event. This was unprecedented in the extreme. There is nothing normal or typical about what had just happened, and so they glorify God. They knew that this was the power of God on display, and such a display deserved their worship and their reverence. We've had those moments, right, where something is drawn out of us instinctively. I remember seeing the 2000 Olympics when Vince Carter literally dunked over a seven-foot-two opponent. Here I am, 23 years removed from that event, And when Vince jumped over this guy, not just around him or, you know, chest to chest, over him, the man's head was between his leg as Vince was over the top of him. Look it up. It'll blow your mind. And I remember seeing that, and I'm just thinking, what did I just see? It just drew out this incredible reaction, this just uh, an instinctive response that hadn't been thought out, but what I saw just couldn't not respond to it. Or maybe on a a little more grown-up version of this, I love taking the trash down at this time of the year because I'm usually doing it when the sun is going down. It's late in the evening, you know, the kids are in bed, and so I can just take it down and the sun is setting, and we have the most beautiful sunsets. And so as I'm walking back down our driveway, I'm seeing our western sky, and it's just lit up with the most gorgeous display of colors. And I often just find myself saying, God, you are so creative and so beautiful that you can paint this with nature itself. And it just, it just you know, without thought, without premeditation, it's just drawn out of me this power that I see on display. And the, the events here in Luke 7 are like this and more. How could the people not marvel at what God had done? How could they not be in awe of what they've just witnessed? And to the point this morning, what about us? Do we just read this story and think, cool story, bro, and then we read on and keep moving? Or do we stop and think, God just raised a dead man. God just had compassion on a widow who thought her life was isolated and alone, and he saw this woman. What do we take away from this story? I hope as you and I see this, it puts us in awe of God. I hope it push, help it, I hope, excuse me, it helps push the little box that we contain God in 
and it pushes us out further so that our view of God grows and our approximation of who He is gets bigger. I hope it stirs up in us an appropriate reverence and fear of God, something that sticks with us in our day-to-day living. And just as importantly, as it does for those here, I hope, I hope that it helps elevate our view of Jesus. Because not only do they say God is visiting us, but they also have this high view of Jesus. Wow, this guy is something special. I hope that as we look at the scriptures, that you and I come away with a high and biblical view of who Jesus is. Again, the people present on this day couldn't deny that a notable miracle had happened and that it was Jesus who was responsible. He was the one who was the source of this. And so their growing estimation of him that's been growing throughout Luke, it takes on a whole new level at this point. They're beginning to see him for who he really is, that God is among them. And getting a high view of Jesus is absolutely important for us too. It's vital for our own theology and our own relationship with God. There's no getting around it that we need a high view of Jesus for our own personal benefit. But we also need it for the world and the people around us. A high and biblical view of Jesus because we're not offering to the broken world around us a relationship with a generic cosmic presence. Somehow you just need to tune yourself in to the universe. We're not here to tell people in their brokenness and in their need that they can find peace and purpose within themselves. That you've got it within you. Just find that peace and that purpose within. We're not telling people that they can just find their place in the greater arrangement of the universe. And when you find your spot in this greater scheme of all that is, you'll be settled. That's not what we're telling folks. We need a high view of Jesus. Because there is only one way to be reconciled to God. There's only one way to find peace and purpose. There's only one way where we find our proper arrangement in this universe, and that is through Jesus. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one way to the Father. And so you and I, we need a high view of Jesus We need to let the Gospels help us see Jesus as the mind-blowing God-man that he is so that we can have this high, accurate, biblical view of him. Now, of course, in all of this, and I want to start kind of landing this plane, in addition to the compassion of God, in addition to the power of God being displayed in very tangible, observable ways, we can't miss how this story is a, a picture of the Gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is all a fictional event made up just so that you can kind of have an allegory for the gospel. Not at all. This event really did happen, and it really has value apart from any picture it might paint. But it does paint a picture. You see, the Bible tells us that like this young man, we are dead, that the wage of sin is death. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it not only brought physical death with it, a a clock that starts ticking the moment we're born, but it also brought spiritual death. And each and every one of us has been touched by that death. We've inherited death because we're descendants of Adam, but we've also chosen death through our own sin and our choices. And the Bible says clearly that outside of Jesus, we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. There's no other way to describe us as spiritually dead. 
We're alive physically. Our lungs are working, our minds are working, but we are dead spiritually, totally separated from God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By its grace, we've been saved. And he has raised us up like this widow's son and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In mercy and compassion, Jesus reaches out to us just like he did to this young man in the coffin. This young man sat there dead in the basket that they were carrying in him. You and I sit dead in our trespasses and sin, and Jesus extends his hand to us both. Now, where the reality of this story differs from the picture that it helps us see is that where the young man just simply was prompted out by the command of Jesus' voice, you and I have the choice to respond where Jesus might be there with his hand extended with life, spiritual life, you and I have to respond. He won't force us to take it. We need to receive his grace through faith. He stands at the door of our heart and he knocks saying, listen, if you'll open up, I'll come in and have fellowship with you. But he knocks and he waits for us to open the door. And so if we respond to his salvation, that invitation of new life. He brings us from our spiritual death into life. We pass from dead to life, from dark to light. The separation between us and God is erased, and we have new life in Christ Jesus. And this is a life that can't be taken away. Now think about this young man in the story here. He eventually is going to die again. This is kind of just a a momentary reprieve from what we all face. The life given on this day is just like the one that you and I have right now. It was limited and finite. But the life that we find in Jesus, the spiritual life that he extends to us, he describes as everlasting life. There is no end to it. It doesn't come with a countdown timer that can't be wound backwards. It's life now and it's life forevermore and it's ours for the asking. And so as we wrap up today, I hope that we've all seen the compassion of God and the power of God in the flesh of Jesus. What it's like to see these things with skin on. But as we move towards worship and invite the worship team to come back up, as we think about concluding, I just want to extend the invitation. If there is anybody here this morning, that when you look, you realize, "Ah, I am that dead man. I'm spiritually dead. I'm here physically. I'm breathing. I'm thinking. I'm moving. I'm doing all the things. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm spiritually dead this morning. I have no relationship with God. I'm separated from Him. I've inherited death, and I've chosen death. And if that's you this morning, and the hand of Jesus is extended to you saying, here is life, I'm just going to give it to you freely if you'll reach out and take it. Is there anybody here who'd respond to that and say, yes, I need to respond to that offer of salvation? You could just Raise up your hands so we can see you and can celebrate with you and pray alongside of you. Amen. But today is the day where you move from death to life. You would sit up and be restored to fellowship like this young man was to his mother. You'd be restored to fellowship with your heavenly father. That separation of sin done away with. Is there anybody else who needs to respond to that?
this morning. Wonderful. Let's, let's pray for those who raised their hand. And let's pray for God's work in their life and as we take this story out with us as we go in, into the world around us. Father, thank you for taking these big ideas of an infinite unseen God and making them so tangible and so real in the person of Jesus. And yes, absolutely, Lord, we want to just simply believe what we read and see uh, described in the Old Testament and just in your nature in general. But thank you for the very powerful expression of these things lived out among us. Compassion, where Jesus was able to take a woman by the hand and dry her tears, speak hope to her, and fix what was so wrong in that moment. Thank you for compassion that is limitless. There's no, no ex- way we can reach the extent of your compassion for us. And thank you, Lord, that that compassion is, is coupled and it's met with and woven together with infinite power. That there is nothing outside of your ability to do in expressing that compassion and care. I think that we get to see that in, in Jesus. Fully God, right here among us, on display for all to see. Thank you for the way that we see ourselves in this story, whether we need compassion, whether we need to be reminded of your power, or whether it's a reminder of the eternal life that you offer us. Lord, we want to respond. And we just want to pray alongside the person who raised their hand this morning and pray that your life would mark theirs, that a transformation would mark their life and there would be a quality of life about them that says Jesus is present here. Thank you that you wash us and you cleanse us and you make us new beside you. You bring us into relationship with you and I pray that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are fully restored to you, that they can say that they are yours and you are theirs. For anybody else in this room this morning that may not have had the courage or the boldness to raise up their hand, but they're just within the kind of the quietness and the their own hearts responding to that. Lord, we pray that you would bring bring to life, speak life to each one of us this morning. Lord, thank you again for this display of who you are in your word. We pray that we would leave the text this morning completely changed by it, whether it's just incrementally or whether it's a substantial change in our life. We pray that we're different today, having spent time considering this incredible display of who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.